Well, the fact is, uh, I don't think there's anyone of us in here who don't need freedom, right? Who long for freedom, who long to truly be set free from something or a number of things. I think it's one of the themes, really, that we see in Scripture is really not only identifying our issues clearly, but also celebrating the fact that Jesus provides a way. So really, the the storyline of Scripture from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through Revelation is, look how royally screwed up things are, but look how amazing God is. And we're a part of that story. And God is good. It's, what's amazing is that God loves us in spite of our lack of performance. Speaking of lack of performance, you might recall a, a very predominant figure in the Bible. He's noted as the greatest king in Israel, King David. King David is a man who, even at a young age, he's the runt of the litter in his family, overlooked as far as even the prophet Samuel is concerned, saying, obviously, this man is going to be the next king. Nope, this man. What about this man? Nope, goes all the way down the line, and it's little old David sitting out in the field. Go bring him back in. Why? Because David loved God. David loved God. He had a, a, a really an overwhelming enthusiasm and passion for God. He worshiped God. Even at a young age, he's writing psalms and his, his acknowledgement and his declaration and his worship of God. And so God says, this is the man I can use. This is the tool in my hands that I am going to do great things with. This is a man after my own heart. After my own heart. And so we know David's legacy. He, he is, he's a man who... Um, was no doubt war-torn, but God used mightily to lead his people. Even a man who God used to really kind of make Solomon look really good, because Solomon built the temple, but David provided all the supplies. Solomon just said, all right, everything's here. Now I just got to build it. All the provisions have been provided for. I just, we just got to make it. But there was a time in David's life in which he failed terribly. And you know the story. And if you don't, I'll tell it to you. David, it says in 2 Samuel chapter 11, in the times in which kings go out to war, he's at home. So already we see from the very first verse of 2 Samuel Samuel chapter 11, David is not where he should be. He's already in a mindset, in a place, in a season of life in which he is compromising And because he's at home and everybody's out to war, he's taking a walk on his balcony one day and he looks down and he sees a woman bathing on her roof. I don't know why the bath was on the roof, but he sees it and he beholds or beholds her beauty and he goes back in still thinking about it, what he just saw, and he has a servant go get her And you know the rest of the story. He has an adulterous affair, seeks to cover up his sin, has her husband murdered. After he tries to manipulate him first, he doesn't fall victim because he's an honorable man and so has him killed until the prophet Nathan points out his rebellion. Perhaps you've asked this question about King David. 
the greatest king of all of Israel, a man after God's own heart, how in the world does someone so great, so in love with God, so consumed with the things of God, fail so miserably? How does someone with a heart after God's, after God's own heart sin in this way? Not too long ago, a pastor friend of mine, an acquaintance, someone who I've looked up to, if he wrote it, I read it, if he spoke it, I listened to it, also failed in sexual sin. And it took me by surprise. But then I couldn't help but in the same breath, also understand more clearly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.13 when he says, there is no temptation that is not common to every single person. There's no temptation that isn't common to every single person. In other words, what, what that verse is communicating to us is this, anyone is capable of anything. Think about that. Anyone is capable of anything. One of the the greatest services you could probably do for yourself is to come into the mindset or believe afresh that you are capable of anything apart from the grace of God. We might think for a moment, going like, oh, I would never do that, much like the Pharisees, right? But the humble mindset says, apart from God's grace, I am capable of anything. You know, we live in a world in which temptation and lust and sexual sin and its many perversions run wild and with basically very little resistance. Sexual immorality and gross perversions of sex, really of God's design of marriage and everything he's designed in the beginning, have really been a normal part of our fallen nature. I probably failed to qualify this. By the way, I'm going to keep this as innocent as possible, but I'm going to be as blunt as needed. So if there's kids in the room, parents, please understand that the topic of conversation here this morning is necessary, but I'll, I'll refer to or default to your intuition on what you should do with your children. The fact is, even in our day and age today, in our society, we see with the advancement of technology, with the advancement of of communication and media on the rise, we see that sex is everywhere. Sex is used really oftentimes not just directly as a means of selling, though that's very prominent also, but we see that it's also a means to a greater end. Even, Even the marketing world uses sex in order to sell products. I mean, who would have thought that going through the checkout line at Safeway, I would need to be reminded of bikini-clad women. Gum, chapstick, some batteries, and bikinis. And I just came to get a head of lettuce. The fact is, our commercials that you see on TV and, and any, any other version, I mean, again, in our social media, internet age, 
You can't look at anything without having all these pop-ups come up, and, and it's amazing with those kind of things that can come into your focus without you even expecting it or wanting it. Who would have thought, for example, speaking of products, that if I wear this cologne, then I get this woman? I mean, the whole axe industry is built upon it. Wear this cologne, put this shampoo in your hair, women come a-flocking. If you eat this gum, your breath will smell so good, women come a-flocking. If you wear these clothes or drink this beverage, women come a-flocking. It's not just in our advertisements and commercials and products either, but it's even places in which we live. I recall very distinctly living down in California, and one of the ideas that I had at the beginning when I moved down for seminary was, I'm like, I'm in California, I'm going to live on the water. And so I lived a block off the water. It was great. Met Abby, we, make, we, we lived in this tiny little place about the size of this podium, uh, about a block from the water. It's all about location, 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 right? And then in general, I loved it. We loved where we were at. But come summertime, which was like March then, down there it just kind of the weather gets hotter and you think like well yeah if you go to the beach there's going to be a lot of bikinis actually in California it's not just the beach it's everywhere they don't stay on the beach they're all over the place if the sun is out the clothes are off and it can be very difficult to protect and guard one's mind The fact is, sex and its many derivatives are everywhere. And no doubt, the the sexual revolution that began in the 60s, actually began much further earlier than that, but gained momentum in the 60s, has had monumental strides even to this day. But one thing we must understand about lust, temptation, and sex is this. It's not just a United States thing. It's not just a 60s and beyond thing. It is a human fallenness thing. From the beginning of time and in all places in time, lust and sexual immorality have been problematic. In every people group and culture in the world, sexual immorality and lust have been problematic. And whether your ethics are progressive in nature or ultra-conservative in nature, no matter what, it is still problematic. It's in fact unavoidable. So it's no wonder why Jesus raises this very common, problematic issue. You recall from a couple weeks ago that Jesus has already set the theme or the tone for his sermon here. He's seeking to clarify the spirit of the law, not just the literal interpretation of the law, but the spirit of the law, the intent of what the law is seeking to to help us understand. And and what Jesus is helping us understand is not just about outward obedience or external obedience, but he wants us to understand that obedience to the law must come from a transformed heart. In other words, we do the right thing for the right reasons, not the right thing for the wrong reasons. It's why Proverbs will say, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. People may be right in their may do right in their own eyes, but the Lord examines the heart. 
And so last week, Jesus raises us his first illustration of what he's talking about, what true righteousness is. And he talks about anger, and he says, you've heard it said in verse 21 that those of old do not commit murder, but I tell you, anyone who is angry has already committed murder in their heart. In other words, the true intent of the law is not just the literal act of murder, but if we harbor anger, if we are persistently anger, if we are unwilling to forgive, if we, are unwilling, if we remain bitter towards somebody, if we just don't like that someone is alive, even though we may not think of them, that is sin. In fact, Jesus says that is a murderous heart. And Jesus raises a second illustration Probably, again, a very common problematic issue for you and me today. And that is, this, that is the topic of lust. Specifically, what it really means to commit adultery. So what is adultery according to Jesus? What is adultery according to the spirit of the law? And your first point, if you're following along in your notes, it'll say this, like murder, adultery is not limited to the literal act, but also includes the desire behind it. Adultery is not limited to the literal act, but it also includes the desire behind it. This is what Jesus says in verse 27. You have heard it said, this is the tradition that you've grown up with, This is how you understand the law. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in in his heart. Now, adultery, just to make sure that we're on the same page, is a consensual sexual relationship between one or more married people and and they're not one another's spouse. In other words, adultery is acting in a way that is outside of God's design for marriage and sex. Now we need to establish some foundational truths so that we have the same point of reference. First of all, we need to understand that marriage and sex are both God's ideas. From the very beginning of time, the, re, the, the, the model that we have of what marriage actually is is not culturally defined. It's not politically redefined. It is how God has designed it from the very beginning in Genesis. It is between a man, it is between a woman, and it is a covenant union together. And as Paul even makes reference to in Ephesians chapter 5, it's really a means for a greater realization of how we relate to God. So marriage is a means by which we understand God's design of relationship and how we are to relate to him. And we see that sex is God's idea to be enjoyed in the context of a covenant marriage union. The reason why sex can be enjoyable is because God created you to like it. He's hardwired us to like it, to enjoy it. Like, oh, fine, let's do this, let's get it. No, 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 he's like, he's like I'm gonna make you just really enjoy this. This is a good thing. God loves you, you're created in his image. He's like, this is a good thing. But 
when you step outside of the bounds in which God has designed his creation, then God calls it sin. In fact, in the law of Moses, if you were guilty of adultery, you were deserving of death. Now, if we were to merely identify or interpret the seventh commandment in Exodus 20, thou shalt not commit adultery, if we were to literally interpret that, we, most of us in here probably would be able to say, you know what? I'm innocent. I'm good. This does not refer to me. But Jesus goes on to clarify the spirit of the law by saying, but I say to you that anyone or everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, adultery is not limited to the physical act, but it is also, it goes much deeper. In other words, adultery begins in the heart. Adultery begins with our desires in the mind. One pastor put it this way, he says, thoughts as well as actions constitute sin. In other words, mental adultery is sin. And just in case some of you in here might be dismissing me because you're like, well, this is talking about married people and I may not be married or married any longer so this no longer includes me, let me just kind of highlight one key word Everyone. So that includes all of us in here. Not just those who are married, not just those who are in a covenant union with another person, but everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. What what does Jesus mean when he says looks? at a woman with lustful intent. What is he really getting at here? Well, like anger, it's actually in the same grammar. Anger is talking about a persistent anger, a harboring of anger. And in the same way, this idea of looking is not the casual glance, but it is a gaze. It is a lingering kind of looking. It is a continuous looking. And and, and now it's qualified. It's not just a lingering kind of look, as we oftentimes do stare off into space or look at the beautiful mountains. It is a lingering like that, but it's a lingering with lustful intent. In other words, you are continually looking with the purpose of sexual gratification, even if it's in the mind. So, David beholding the beauty of Bathsheba, lingered. He may not have helped the first look, but he was completely responsible for what happened thereafter. And he continued to behold her beauty and went even back into his chambers and thought about it, so much so that he would finally said, hey, servant, bring her to me. It is also the habit of looking lustfully. It's not just a one-time thing, but it is the constant habit. Let me get very blunt. It is, guys, when you kind of do the double take all the time and you don't even think about it. It's sobering to me when I've talked to grown children 
about their dads and grandfathers. And one of the memories that some grown children have about, have about their dads and grandfathers is, yeah, they always looked at other women right in front of us. I don't know if they knew we, we noticed or not, but they always kind of did this right in the presence of mom even. Now we need to qualify what we're talking about here just to make sure we're crystal clear. Jesus isn't talking about an initial glance. He's not talking about just taking notice of someone. He's not even talking about finding other people attractive. It's okay to say, wow, this person's beautiful or this person's attractive, this person's handsome. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is getting at is what goes on in the mind after that initial glance. He's, what he's getting at is what's going on in the heart following that initial look. As I said before, you can't help for the first look, but you can always help the second That initial look, when it becomes a gaze, when it becomes a linger with lustful intent, that becomes sin. Why? Because that look is intended or reserved between a man and the woman of a marriage union. And only intended. That that kind of desire is only intended within the covenant relationship of marriage. So let's get very practical here. Gazing isn't just, I notice somebody, but it is also all the decisions we make in everyday life. For example, we may, we may be aware of our surroundings and be careful of where our eyes go, perhaps, but it also includes other things even when other people are not looking. For example, I could be driving down the road and you notice someone walking And perhaps you decide to look in your rearview mirror to get a second glance. It could be at your fitness center of choice. After all, we're just working out. It could be the TV shows you choose to watch. Maybe in the back of your mind you know that certain series are pushing the envelope a little bit. Certain movies moving slowly by the magazine rack. Obviously the internet and social media. I think what's so sobering about what Jesus is really communicating here is this. He's saying that it's not that We look with lustful intent and therefore it is now a sin. But he says when we look with lustful intent, we have already sinned. We've already committed adultery. In other words, the reason why you look at someone with lustful intent is because adultery is already taking place in one's heart. Listen to what he says. If you look at a woman with lustful intent, it has already committed adultery with her in her heart. John MacArthur says it this way, it's not the lustful looking that causes sin in the heart, but the sin in the heart that causes lustful looking. That's why Jesus will say in Matthew 15, for from the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. Perhaps you've heard this proverb before, not proverbs from the proverbs, but a proverb. So a thought and reap an act. Sow an act and reap a habit. 
Sow a habit and reap a character. And sow a character and reap a destiny. Much like David and much like us, sin and temptation to sin usually comes in increments. They come through a series of maybe even small compromises. David is already in a a season of compromise. And then it's no wonder in a season of compromise that he fell to bigger compromises and fell into further sin. Now up to this point, we might be making this conclusion. Jesus is only talking to guys. And in some sense, that's very true. Obviously, even using his and her designates kind of the the audience that Jesus is directing, directing his message. But it doesn't just talk to guys. It also includes you ladies. It includes you in a number of ways. First of all, we already know that even in our over-sexualized culture today, that it's, pornography is not an issue just for guys, but it's also for girls. That the temptation to, to look with lustful intent or desire is not just a problem with guys, but it is also a problem with women. Now, I'm not going to go into any stats or anything right now, but I will say this. Ladies, just because something is considered trendy, just because something is considered current fashion, does not mean that it should be your fashion. Just because things are popular does not mean they should be common to you. But it's amazing how much, especially in the clothing industry, and guys have a great imagination. We don't, have, we don't need a whole lot to kind of trigger things. But when you leave little to the imagination, or when your clothing is so form-fitting, the question is, what are you seeking in that? What are you trying to convey? Perhaps you are actually wanting the lingered stare. If I could just kind of address moms and dads and grandparents very quickly. Moms and dads, grandparents too. Can I just say, be proactive with your children, especially your daughters. And yeah, you're gonna be that parent. The nonconformist the ultra-conservative, the boring, boring, no fun, life-giving, joyless parent ruining my life. But I guarantee you, you are saving your children. Don't let the world define your children's priorities and values and ethics. Don't let the world define morality for your children. You set that spiritual tone for your family. You set a precedent 
and explain why. Don't just say what, but here's why. And here's the consequences when we don't listen to God's way. Speaking of consequences, perhaps you might ask the question, well, why does this matter in the first place? I mean, it's so almost normalized in our culture, and I've heard people say this, even professing Christians, it's so normal, why does it even matter? Why even care about this? Why even fight? Well, because as we see in Jesus' warning, our eternal life may be at stake for some of us. Listen to what he says here in verse 29 and 30. If your right hand causes you to sin, tear it out. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one member than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than, to your, than for your whole body to, be, and to go into hell. I believe the point that Jesus is getting at is this. This is point number two. A pattern of sexual immorality leads to eternal death. A pattern of sexual immorality leads to eternal death. Let me help you understand this because this is one of those tension topics. This is one of those, not a gray area, but these tensions that we read in Scripture Because on one hand, we read in Romans 8, for example, that nothing can separate me from the love of God. And that is absolutely true. That if you are a believer in Christ, if you are a son or daughter of the king, nothing, not even your sin, can separate you from the love of God. But we ought to be sobered by this fact, as Paul will also say elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Oftentimes we want to put qualification to, well, unless they're Christians or professing Christians and then it doesn't apply to them. Well, the question is, would a professing Christian pursue a pattern of this lifestyle? Would a true follower of Jesus be content with a lifestyle of continuous Lust and sexual immorality. I don't believe so. Now let me say this very clearly. This doesn't mean that you and I don't struggle. This doesn't mean that we don't have a very real battle every single day. That's not what Jesus is addressing here. It doesn't mean that we, that we don't even fall into temptation, that we don't even sin in this way. That's not what Jesus is getting at. What he's getting at is a persistent, a continuous lifestyle choice, saying, you know what? I've decided my moral compass. I've decided what is right morally, especially in regards to sexual ethics. And therefore, God has his design, but I've created my own. Or I've adopted what the culture has said. As Jesus says very poignantly in our passage, 
Yes, on one hand, we may have a struggle, but we must be consciously determined to fight this battle by God's grace. One of the greatest evidences of a believer is not that you struggle, but that you're in the battle. That you recognize there is a battle. And even if you fail continuously, you're fighting as far as you are able, but fully dependent upon the grace of God. So practically speaking, how do we fight this battle effectively? How do we resist the temptation to lust and sexual sin? I believe this, point number three, radical consequences call for radical action. Radical consequences call for radical action. Again, verses 29 and 30, Jesus says this, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, to properly understand that, we might be saying, well, is that that literal? No. Jesus is kind of speaking in hyperbole here. And we know that because even if you were to gouge out your right eye and cut off your right hand, you would still struggle with lust because it begins in the mind. So gouging out your eye and cutting off your hand would not fix the problem. In fact, there's, there's countless stories. For example, Origen, one of the early church fathers, when he read this passage, what did he do? I don't mean to be crass in this, but he castrated himself. Only to conclude that the lust continued in his life. Many church fathers or monastic leaders isolated themselves for years and years to to avoid any temptation of all kinds only to discover or conclude that the, the lust of the flesh followed. So that's not really what Jesus is getting at here, but what he is getting at is this. If you understand culturally, the right eye and the right hand were considered of most value to the person. Again, as is common even today, Many people are right-handed and right-eye dominant, perhaps. But what Jesus is really seeking to communicate is this, is that we ought to be willing to give up what is necessary and even valuable in order to avoid lustful desire. In other words, radical measures must be taken so that we don't fall victim to this temptation. It is a conscious and a purposeful decision to avoid sin. So for example, again, I'd love to get practical here. Jesus means this. We don't justify watching a certain TV series, for example, just because it has a good plot. And even though you know it's full of nudity. Oh, but it's got a great storyline. 10.7 million Americans are taking the day off tomorrow to watch the finale of Game of Thrones. It's had quite a cult following. I remember when Fifty Shades of Grey first came out, right? And there was a big, like, at least on the blogosphere, big debate. Should Christians see this movie or not? As As if it should have even been a debate. 
as if there was any redeeming value in watching that. Now granted, I'm not, I'm not, say, I'm not coming up here pious and saying that the temptation's not there. But we must make a conscious and purposeful, radical decision to avoid any flattering or flirtatious movement towards this kind of sin. I think what it also means in the most practical ways, perhaps, especially you guys, perhaps you don't go on the internet unless your spouse or roommate's in the room. Perhaps, and I think this is true of all of us, you ought to put accountability software on every single device you have. Now, of course, where there's a will, there's a way. Nothing's foolproof. But you need to take radical action in order to not fall victim to this kind of sin. You might actually rebuttal and say this, Aaron, how in the world could I function today if I even got rid of my internet or got rid of my smartphone? I mean, I'm so dependent on it, and I, I'm, I'm not against, I, I, I agree with you. I use mine every single day. But is it worth your heart? Is it worth being enslaved to sexual sin? The question for us is not how far can we go and it not be sin, but the question we need to grapple with is what steps do I need to take in order to stay as far away from sin as possible? In other words, radical action might involve this. It might actually be changing gym memberships. It might actually mean getting rid of your cable altogether. It might mean getting rid of your TV, period. Yes, they even still make flip phones. The question is, are you willing to take radical action, even things that you love, that in and of themselves are not wrong, but can be a tool in the hands of the enemy to lead you in a path of destruction? Let me give you a helpful tip. We have bunk beds by the nature of necessity at our house. And the bunk beds have little ladders on them and our little shrimplets love to climb the ladder now. They love climbing, it's great. We'll hear this little chatter in the background, like what's that noise, we go in the room and they're on the, the top bunk and it's great, right? And all you see is like them jumping and falling over the railing, hitting their head on the hardwood floor. It, it's great. So we, 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 we foresee all the potential bad things that could happen, and we're like, you know what, enough, enough. Enough is enough. And so in the morning, guess what our routine is now? Katie gets down from her bed, the ladder gets taken off and thrown on top of the bunk. Guess what? No option. You take the ladder away, you don't have to worry about kids climbing a ladder. You take the opportunity or the option away to sin in some very easy ways. And it is one step in guarding your heart.
but it takes radical action. It almost, to to adopt the, the verbiage of Dave Ramsey, it takes gazelle intensity. For the gazelle to live and not to die from the the cheetah or the lion, it's run or be killed. And I think in the same way, we need to view sexual lust and temptation in the same same manner. Run or be killed. You know, see, the reason why, and this is the point of it all, the reason why we are called to take such extreme action against sin and anything that might tempt us to sin is so that we can experience God more fully. Understand, brothers and sisters, that your sin does not enable you to experience God fully. Your sin will always distort, distract, confuse, and enslave. And it's probably why some of us in here may be joyless and full of guilt. But God gives us these commands not to take your joy, but to restore your joy. God gives us these commands not because he wants to take your freedom away, but because he wants to maximize your freedom. It is for freedom, brothers, that Christ came to set you free. And as I kind of talked about last week or the week before, God doesn't give us these commands. They're not burdensome because he wants to be a killjoy in your life. He wants to, he gives them so that you can truly experience life and experience his present to the fullest. This is the abundant life. We can choose to do life on our terms and then reap the consequences. And God says, I've shown you the path of life. I love what David says in Psalm 16. You made known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So when we follow God's way, we truly live. We attain and receive and experience the joy that we are intended to experience. We experience the presence of God more fully. Another prominent figure in scripture is a man by the name of Joseph. Genesis 39, well you know the kind of story perhaps of Joseph. Joseph, again, kind of the the runt of the litter until his younger son Benjamin was born. Joseph was favored by his father. That didn't sit so well with his older brothers. And one day, Joseph goes out to the field to check on the well-being of his brothers. And if you actually understand culturally what's going on, the father doesn't trust the sons. He thinks they're lazy, and so he's going out to check on them. So the younger brother is going to go out and tattle on the older brothers. That doesn't sit so well. All of them want to kill him, and finally Judah stands and goes, well, no, let's not kill him, let's sell him. And so they sell him to a caravan. He gets taken to Egypt. He becomes a slave. And you know the story. Potiphar is the captain of the guard or the army. But, they, they, but Joseph is a slave in his house. And his wife begins to make moves and make advancements. They, Joseph, because he is upright and because he serves the Lord, he does not even go there. 
And when, when Potiphar's wife makes a move, he runs. He flees. He doesn't give it a thought. One of the best things you can do for yourself, brothers and sisters, is to not entertain or flirt with the idea. Because the moment you begin to say, hmm, you're already falling. That's why Job would say, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look at a virgin with lustful intent. It's a resolution that we need to wake up regularly, daily with, saying I have made a covenant with my eyes and with my heart. I will not entertain that, and if I do, I will confess my sin, knowing that God is faithful to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. But I will fight this battle by his grace in my life. There's a couple, uh, there's a whole list of practical advice in the back of your notes there, and it's not unique to me. I stole it from somebody else, but they thought they were good, so I'm passing them on to you. A couple things just to reflect on kind of now, but definitely later today, this next week. First of all, understanding that desire is an alarm. We must understand that desire is an alarm. Now, not all desire is a bad desire, but in like fashion, not all desire is a good desire. So when we have a desire, when we have an overwhelming passion for something, we ought to pay attention We ought to recognize what is the nature of this desire? Why am I drawn to this in this way? Is it right to even be drawn in this way? You ought to really be kind of like almost a devil's advocate in your own heart. Is this right? Is this good? Is this healthy? Does this draw me to Christ? Does this push me away from Christ? Secondly, recognize where you are vulnerable. Be honest with yourself. Just because someone else is able to do something doesn't mean that you are. Just because someone else may have victory and, ha- and be strong enough in a certain situation doesn't mean you are. So know where you're vulnerable and take steps accordingly. Watch your input. As I've said in the past, everything you intake disciples you. Literally everything we expose ourselves to is discipling us. It's influencing us. We are not idle in life. There's no neutrality. We are either moving toward Christ or we are being drawn away from him. Dress thoughtfully. Watch your circumstances. Think consequences. Satisfy one another in marriage if you're married. Tell somebody This is important, brothers and sisters. Sin is always powerful in isolation. Sin has great power when it is kept a secret. But it loses its power when it's brought into the open, when it's brought in the light. Probably the most courageous things you could do for yourself is to tell somebody, I'm struggling. Probably the most encouraging thing you might hear is, so am I. Run away 
much like Joseph did. And lastly, and I think this is most important, rely on God's spirit. Worship team, you can come on up here. Rely on God's spirit. IBC family, understand this, that at the end of the day, you and I are desperately dependent on God's grace and his help in time of need. Your only ability to overcome the temptation of lust and sexual sin does not come from within yourself. But it is only God's grace in your life by his spirit that empowers you, that enables you to fight this battle. It is a very real battle. It's a very real struggle. Let's stop being surprised that someone may be struggling because guess what? If you even look statistically, about 80% of us in here are currently actively struggling. And the other 20% are also So that includes all of us. So let's kind of pull off the facade here. Let's be real. And let's God tra- let God transform us. Let's throw ourselves, much like the task collector, at the mercy and grace of God and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The fact is, when it's all said and done, We need the grace and the help of God. Amen.